Hey everyone, it's That Guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. A couple of weeks ago, my friend Tyler and I uh, recorded an episode, and we called it What's the Big Idea? Basically, we had a conversation about uh, things that show up in our world or questions that we have, and and it was kind of a, a thought experiment of sorts to say, uh, is, one thing is, what if we could do something different that we haven't thought of, or has somebody thought about this? Uh, but it's kind of based around the idea that maybe you're sitting around with your friends sometimes, and you're saying, well, I wonder you know, why people don't do X, Y, or Z, or I wonder why uh, we don't do something a certain way, or maybe I read that uh, you know, the, the, I saw this thing. Uh, that I read, and I wonder if it's true. And you kind of have these questions, you have these conversations with your friends. And uh, so Tyler and I decided to turn this into a kind of segment on the on the podcast. And one of the things that we talked about and raised uh, as a question is this idea that's out there about what happens with wind turbines after they're decommissioned. And there's a lot of talk out there in the in the internet land about uh, maybe wind turbines aren't as green as we thought they were because at some point they reach the end of their useful life. And then what do we do with them? We just do we just tear them down and throw them into a graveyard. And there's a meme out there that shows all these wind turbine blades in a giant graveyard, I, I think in Wyoming or something. And uh, so we kind of asked the question, you know, one, is that true? Is that actually what happens? Or is this just some product of the internet? And the second question is, if it is true, does it have to be true? Is there something else we could do with this? So one of the things that we want to try to do on that segment is come back and answer those questions. After we've had the conversation, we asked the question, we want to come back and, and answer it. So what I did is I uh, got a hold of Kimberly Swati, and she works extensively in the, the renewable energy field. And I sat down and visited with her for about an hour, and we talked about kind of some of the developments in energy policy. But she also talked to me about uh, what happens with wind turbines after they've reached the end of their useful life. And I found the conversation fascinating. And uh, I think you'll likewise find it fascinating. There's a lot of information in here about uh, what actually happens. And I think it's important to, to note that I think one of the things I like to do is I, I see things and I, I wonder if they're true or I think they're true. And uh, I, it's easy to just assume that that's true and not expend any energy trying to find out if what you think is true is actually true. So um, I hope that we can do more of this in the future. Tyler and I have several other ideas and we have a couple of other questions that we've put out there um, that we're working on getting the answers on. But one of the things I really hope comes out of this is that if, if we ask the question, is this true? And I hope that, you know, listeners participate in this too. I hope that they send us their ideas, their questions, uh, that all of you will say, hey, I, I have this idea about something. I wonder if this is right or not. And we'll, you know, try to find somebody who's an expert in the field who has good information about this and make sure that we're getting good answers to these questions. So for the first uh, kind of step back into the answer portion of this, uh, I, I, I want to just set this up and let you listen to the conversation with Kimberly. Uh, I think you'll find it fascinating. I think you'll, you'll walk away with a lot of information that uh, we didn't have before. And certainly I didn't have before. And I hope you find that uh, informative and entertaining and enjoyable. Thank you.
Good morning. My name is Kimberly Gensher Swati, and I represent the clean energy industry in the state of Kansas. So that means the companies and businesses and employers that develop uh, clean energy projects, wind, solar, battery storage, soon to be hydrogen projects, as well as those that operate the projects, maintain the projects, um, the companies that uh, purchase the power from those projects, in addition to the companies that work to engineer the projects, do the environmental services, legal services. So it's a very diverse group of entities that employ Kansans in both rural, urban, and mid-sized cities across the state. And that industry has been, I mean, growing, uh, I mean, fairly, uh, fairly well over the last 10, 20 years, hasn't it? It's actually a, it's an unbelievable success story for the state of Kansas and for our economy. And when you think about those difficult fiscal years in the early, so coming out of the 2008 uh, housing crisis and, and into the recession that came about as a result, really one of the shining stars in the Kansas economy, it was a very quiet shining star in the Kansas economy, was the growth of the, the clean energy economy. And we, 20 years ago, we had one operating wind farm in the state of Kansas, but the industry knew the resource was good and that the resource was there. And as more transmission was developed that allowed for power of all types, not just renewable energy, but power of all types to flow more efficiently across the state of Kansas and into our regional system, it provided a real opportunity to take our Kansas, at this point, Kansas wind, and use it like we use our cattle or our grain. Mm -hmm. So in-state consumption, but we also really export it a great deal. So that's really what has been the story for Kansas from the clean energy standpoint has been the growth of the industry. Now, I think about 12 years ago, about 80% of our power roughly came from fossil fuel generation and fast forward to today and more than 50% of the, or about 50% of Kansas's power comes from just wind power, not to mention some of our solar. And then of course we do have hydropower in the state of Kansas. So mm -hmm. we're talking a massive transformation in how power is generated in the state. And, and wind has, it's really competitively priced now, right? The investments have been made and, and um, we're, we're able to produce particularly wind. And I, I don't, I, I want to ask about solar too, because I, I know that's, uh, we're seeing more of that show up in the state, but the, the cost of producing energy through wind is, has really come down over the years too, hasn't it? Again, going back to the kind of, the importance of technology and innovation, it cannot be underscored, particularly in this space. When you think about, you know, people want to talk a lot about uh, like Silicon Valley and, and this, the technology and changes that that has meant to our economy. Well, when you look at the renewable energy space, um, in 2005, about 85% of the of the thousands of component parts that go into a, a wind turbine itself, they were made largely in Europe. Mm -hmm. So then they had to be transported here and so on and so forth. And that, of course, brings up 
I mean, it increases the cost for all the shipping and transport. Now, fast forward to today, and it's the inverse. So one, the ability to onshore those jobs. At the same time, we've also seen turbine technology, although I think that they're kind of reaching for at least onshore turbines pretty much maximum. The blades are getting longer. And so the sweep means that then you're just able to generate more constant speeds all the time. That, interestingly enough, has been a bit of a great levelizer. Kansas, Oklahoma, the Dakotas, Panhandle of Texas, we are the Saudi Arabia of wind in the, in the world. But now as the turbine technology has advanced so much, slightly taller towers, longer blades, and you can put uh, highly productive wind farms in places like Michigan or Kentucky or Indiana, places that have historically not had, they just haven't had a strong capacity factors uh, as Kansas and, and the surrounding states. Um, but that has been, it's, it's research and development, our ability to forecast. We now can forecast into five minute intervals as far as how hard the wind's gonna blow and what speeds. So then, you know, each project developer can, you know, push that information into our regional transmission organization. So our RTO knows exactly what the output of the various wind farms will be across the state at any given time. So those three factors are just have had a profound impact to where we are now. Uh, Kansas wind is the lowest cost form of generation that exists. A new Kansas wind project is the lowest cost form of generation. That was not the case necessarily 10 to 15 years ago uh, where the cost still needed to come down. They were competitive, but they could not compete with a depreciated coal unit. They couldn't compete with nuclear. And now, not only do they, they um, oftentimes create negative pricing in the marketplace because they are so cost competitive because our resource is so good. And we, I can't remember where Kansas ranks in, in wind capacity, uh, but it's up there. It's two or three or four, isn't it? It, it really is. So we are... We've kind of gone back and forth, back and forth with Iowa for the last several years as far as who's number one or number two as a percentage of renewable energy being integrated into it, power portfolio. Um, and, and right now we're number two behind Iowa. They, they had a massive infusion of, of several big wind farms in the last couple of years. And certainly we've had our fair share of new projects go online as well. But um, two things, Iowa has a slightly, they have a larger population than us, so their demand is more. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Kansas is still second in the United States as far as you know, energy, energy that powers um, our state from renewables. Now, I always like to step back because we're still one of the top five producers of renewable energy in the United States, which if you think about California and you think about Texas and the sheer population size of those two states, and to think that we are in the top five with them, mm -hmm. who they have, I mean, their populations, we pale in comparison. We're, we're sizes smaller by, you know, by significant factors. Sure. And yet, you know, it's, it's Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, California, Iowa. You know, those are the five states that are in the top five power producing. Unbelievable success story for Kansas 
the economic benefits are so widely distributed areas. And we could sit and talk for hours about, you know, commodity prices were so helping keep farmers. Uh, quite a few banks that have said, none of my farmers that had turbines declared Chapter 12. And that's, you know, that's an important story to tell because it, the, the ag economy is so important to our state. Yeah, and this is another layer in, into that ag economy that provides another source of revenue for producers. Absolutely. It's that diversification tool. It's that, you know, I think about uh, Josh and I and our, and our own farm in Ellsworth, and, you know, we did everything that, that the agronomists were suggesting. We, you know, put, all, you know, just did, just did it all as it was supposed to be when it came time to planting um, last summer. And, but we never could have anticipated that we would go from Memorial Day to Labor Day without an ounce of measurable rain. Yeah. What do you do? And so having access to the the regular payments from the turbines themselves has been uh, a, a real gift to those communities, to those landowners, and then of course to the communities. Not to mention that you know whenever what is it that a dollar that's been invested in a rural area, I think moves around about seven times before it leaves the community. So, you know, you have like the stories that we have during COVID when we had three projects that were under construction and they were in different parts of the state and where pretty much everything was shuttering and closing and businesses were laying people off in the communities where projects were being built. I, there was a, a local auto parts store that actually ended up hiring people and they were working obviously under all the safety protocols and such. And particularly those guys that were building the projects, they were outside. So mm -hmm. uh, again, from a safety protocol standpoint, but like the local auto parts facility in Southeast Kansas, they were supplying the, they were supplying the uh, project with uh, lubricant and oil and they were hiring people or the small restaurants that absolutely would have shuttered but they now had 300, 400 people that they needed to feed three meals a day. And so they were hiring people. So it's, it's in all of these different areas that you really don't even think would touch a project, but these projects, the, their economic magnitude are very significant. Yeah, and very, and very, like you said, widespread into different areas that you wouldn't anticipate. Uh, well, yeah. one of the things I wanted to ask you about, so as we talk about the development of wind energy over the years and the advances in technology. And one of the conversations I had with a, a friend of mine a few weeks ago on the podcast uh, was kind of asking questions about, you know, what what happens? We're, we're, we're coming to a place where uh, urbans are maybe reaching or getting towards the end of their useful life. And there's been a lot of chatter online. And, and in, in today's world, it's very hard to determine uh, how much truth lies in anything that you see online. But the, the prevailing right. thought and the memes and whatever else is that, uh, well, wind, wind turbines may not be all that great because they, they get decommissioned, they run their, their lifespan, and then you have to d disassemble them. And then what do you do because they're either made of fiberglass or carbon fiber and they just go into a landfill or they go into a big uh, wind turbine graveyard somewhere and and it's it's done kind of in a way it seems to to maybe try to invalidate the value of of wind and I, I see a lot of people do that. 
Uh, but my friend Tyler and I thought, let's just find out what what are the blades made of, uh, what happens to them when when they're not usable anymore, and um, and is there any secondary use or any recycling opportunities? So uh, that's a that's a lot in one question, but you can piece that up however you'd like. Okay. No, it's, <laughs> and it's actually I think one of the questions because you know, as you have you know, as you have industries that are growing up, you know they they obviously have to to work through various elements of of themselves, mm-hmm. and um, so you know with with the internet, you have all sorts of things related to privacy and dark web, and and it, that has to be dealt with. And um, you know, we have gone the re- clean energy industry has gone from you know its infancy to you know what I believe, and I think many other believe is we are a mature industry, and we are acting like a mature industry. We're no longer in startup mode. Mm-hmm. And so, several years ago, uh, the first. So let me, I'm just going to do a little bit of history if that's okay. No, that's great. I think it's helpful to understand like where we were and how we got to where we are now. Okay. Um, so in the late seventies, um, well, I guess in the seventies, the industry was frozen and discouraged the country mm-hmm. and went to Europe and the European countries took the American technology and, and kind of modified it, perfected it, and in the late and and began deploying it across Europe in the 80s or early 90s, and then um, brought it back here to the United States in the late 1990s, early 2000s. So the first uh, first wind farm in Kansas was utility that I worked for, um, Aquila, which operated all electric natural gas all across the state. That was the first project, it's also known as the Gray County Wind Farm. Some people refer to it as Montezuma, mm-hmm. but it's in Montezuma, Kansas. And so 2001, we're just now starting to see some of those projects needing to move into what we call repowering. And there's there's kind of two components. There's one that would be repowering a project, and then two would be decommissioning. Okay. So de- decommissioning is when a project is really, it, it's, it's not moving forward. It's not continuing to generate. They have not re-upped the leases. You know, they've not worked with the landowners and the communities to re-up the leases. So the project is going to be taken down. And that means, you know, the blades, the towers, the equipment, all the roads, well, the ground will be all remediated. Um, you take the towers and the tower bases down. It, this is all in every landowner's contract. It's also in every contract with the county the specific requirements for decommissioning. And typically we go down and take out um, the bases and the material down six feet underground. Uh, we remediate down to six feet. So all of the documentation that's done prior to construction, the ground is returned to as it was, if not in better condition than as it was found. And that's a decommissioning strategy. Honestly, Jason, they're really, oh, also part of that um, decommissioning element is a escrow is escrow account or a bond payment. So again, landowners and communities are never on the hook for paying for decommissioning. Now that is certainly not the experience that um, our state and many other states have with like decommissioned oil and gas wells or whatnot. I mean, there was so much federal money that's coming to Kansas at some point, I think, you know, 
upwards of $45 million or so to continue to help plug abandoned oil and gas wells. Mm -hmm. But landowners and counties, per the agreements that they sign individually, the landowners with the, with the developer and then the counties with the companies, they are never on the hook to worry about the elements of decommissioning. So, and that's, that's like standard, and that's like standard language in the contract. Standard language in the contract. Okay. And, um, and I think that that's a really important fact that exists because there is always a scare tactic that landowners and counties are going to be held um, liable financially for decommissioning. And that is just absolutely not the case. Now, when it comes to decommissioning, this is where you have kind of a similar scenario to repowering. And, I, and first, before I get into how they're similar, I'll explain what repowering is. Repowering has happened twice already in Kansas to two Kansas operating wind farms. So the Gray County wind farm, Montezuma, has been repowered. And then a portion of the Smoky Hills wind farm, which was the third wind project in the state, it too was repowered. And repowering is basically an optimization. Not every, certainly the towers themselves do not come down. You have selected parts of selected turbines in a project that will be optimized. So the technology is so savvy that they can say, we're gonna, we're gonna swap out a blade, one blade on this tower. We're gonna change out some of the IT systems. Um, maybe you might have, maybe you will place in a cell or two across the project, but it is very selective project turbine optimization. Okay. And so we have had two projects go through that. And um, specifically in the case of the Smoky Hills project, and this is why I kind of tie this all together, going back to the importance of R&D, research and development and technological innovation. The industry knew it, it, that it needed to deal with the in decommissioning or in a repowering scenario, how do we deal with what's coming down? Yeah. Because at our core, we are a renewable energy industry. So it's very important that we leave the smallest footprint possible. So we know that to build a wind farm, it takes about eight months of the pro of a project being operational to offset all of the carbon associated with actual construction and all of the manufacturing, all of the cement aggregate, rebar, all of it. it the carbon footprint is offset within eight months of operation. We needed to make sure that we had quality on the back end. So a couple of key points, about 85% recoverable and solve the technological challenge of actual of the blade recycling. They are taking down the handful like KDOT and others to use these blades uh, because- For, for bridges? They, for bridges. Oh, wow. The, Sturdy. I mean, when you think about their those blades' ability to withstand speeds of more than 100 miles an hour constantly when they're producing, uh -huh. which is 99% of the time, they have to be incredibly strong and durable. Yeah. So they they do make fantastic. So we are, I'd say we're beyond beta testing. We are, you know, moving into partnership for use such as that. We are um, 
Also, they're so perfect fit for pedestrian bridges, playground equipment, uh, public benches, signage, power line structures, like highway sound barriers. So those are those are uses that are being employed right now. Also, we have a couple of companies um, in Oklahoma that they are grinding up, they're grinding up the blades and they can use them in um, as like a, a material similar to like MDF. Oh, and press it together uh, and make a board or something. Yep. Okay. And so it's being used in flooring. Uh, you know, it's kind of like a, a, you know, if you were putting in a floor and then you were going to put tile or carpet or whatnot over that, it would be fine there. Mm-hmm. So that's also happening. Um, they're also looking at ways to just reuse the decommissioned blades. And I mean, just in building, like in buildings themselves and various other infrastructure ways, you've seen some in Europe using it for landscape or public art, um, which is kind of interesting, but, but the next step is already happening. So those are just like taking the blades as they are and X, Y, or Z. Um, um, we're looking at ways to turn the blades into like deck products, like decking, mm-hmm. installation, um, railroad ties, pallets, particle board. So we've got um, like NREL, the National Renewable Energy Lab, Department of Energy, University of Tennessee, uh, quite a few businesses. I mean, I think about the um, the private equity that's really into this space into making sure that you know renewable energy blades the whole renewable energy spectrum is in fact renewable mm-hmm. so it, it's amazing the transformation again in the last so probably three years yeah it seems like so, it's really like some of that technology i i know at least on the nacelle part uh those things are just getting bigger and able to produce much more power uh, yeah. than, than they were a generation ago. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And I think kind of some other interesting points, you know, I know that there are detractors that like to, you know, just, you know, say, well, the blades are just going to go down and they're going to stay down on the ground and, you know, it's going to leach into the landfills or whatnot. And, mm-hmm. and that just in fact is, is, is not happening and it's just not the case. And when you think about the blades themselves, for example, the, the turbines and the blades, they're made from like safe inert materials that they don't leach hazardous waste into the soil or underground. So just, just to understand the materials themselves, five materials account for 98% of the mass of a turbine. So this is a turbine, not just the blades, but of the turbine. So in the turbine, it's, you know, steel, iron, fiberglass, copper, and, and aluminum. Um, and steel actually is 90, 70% of the turbine mass. And it's 100% recyclable. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the world's most recycled materials. So, so and then the, the turbine blade is primarily made of fiberglass and like balsa wood. So again, that's how we're able to grind it up to use it in particle board or to use it in infrastructure projects. Or, so that, that, that is happening. And I, th- I think it's incredibly exciting. Well, I do too. And it sounds like there are a lot of engineers and, and like-minded people that are putting their minds to uh, new ways to use this, like recognizing that 
you know, th- there there needs to be an afterlife, so to speak, for for some of these products, and they're thinking about ways that these could be recycled and reused. Yes, and I'm going to send you. This is just kind of some interesting data from EPA, mm-hmm. but it, here, so here's some projection from what's called EPRI, but it's the Electric Power Research Institute. So they estimate that between um, 2020. In 2050, so 30 years, their estimate, and this I think is like a 2017 estimate. So I, this is even before some of these recent advances. Mm-hmm. They estimate that there will probably be between 2.1 to 4 million tons of cumulative blades put in landfills in those 30 years. Again, this is that statistic, that data point is probably several years old. Mm-hmm. So I think it'll be just significantly less than that actually. Okay, by comparison, in that same time frame, or not in the same time frame, in one year alone, this was in 2017, one year, there were 139 million tons of US municipal solid waste that went into landfills. So, I mean, the scale of what we as humans <laughs> generate is is I mean wind turbine blades over thirty years might be one two thousandth of a percent of what we just generate through the normal in course of our lives. Yeah, in in a year. In a year. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And plastic plates and cups alone will make up roughly ten times more. Just plastic plates and cups. Those tiny plastic plates and cups will make up ten times more than what uh, a blade blades would make up over thirty years. So I'm going to send you these data points because, again, when we're talking about industry, it's it's easy to one not realize what we're sending to landfills on our own. Mm-hmm. I, I do a lot of work with Harvesters, which is the a community which is the community food bank that serves twenty six Kansas counties. Um, works closely with the Kansas Food Bank, which is out of Sedgwick County. Mm -hmm. And it's staggering to me that the average American citizen, Kansan, we throw out 1,200 pounds of food a year on average. Wow. Wow. 1,200 pounds of food a year. So we're, you know, the possibility of these blades might be, but we're not looking at what we're doing ourselves. And we're also... I mean, I think then it's incumbent upon us as consumers to push other industries as well to, you know, really look at their waste going to landfills. Because, I mean, when you look at, I'll send you this data point, but the data points on like food, clothing and footwear, yard trimmings, diapers, vehicle tires, towels, sheets, pillowcases, trash bags, plastic plates and cups, and then, and then turbine blades. Um, I'll send it to you because it, it might just be interesting for your listeners to understand that it's every industry. And and I'm very proud to work for an industry that recognizes that we do have a, a visible, very visible, although the, the product isn't visible necessarily because we can't necessarily see the wind and you don't really see electricity. You just know when your lights are on or not. Yeah. Um, but you do see the generation part of it, whether, and in our case, the generation comes from 
wind or solar panel and or battery storage or um, hydrogen uh, or other you know energy efficiency or other kind of advanced energy solutions. But wind turbine blades in particular, you can see those, you see them for miles and miles and miles. And mm-hmm. so it's incumbent upon this industry. I'm very proud to work for this industry, which is really taken up the mantle of making sure that, you know, from beginning to end, we are a renewable energy. We are about clean energy and we are about um, not only having, we're just ha- having as as minimum of an impact on and a footprint on the, on our environment as possible that could be negative with having a maximum positive impact. Yeah. Uh, so on, on this, on this issue, what, what do you think is the source of some of these criticisms? I mean, the, these things kind of, and you know, it, the previous episode where we talked about this, my, my friend and I talked about uh, somebody's, so somebody gets an idea and then it becomes a meme and then the meme gets around and then it becomes truth. Um, so <laughs> what, what, where do you think the, what do you think the origin of this sort of criticism is or this belief that, Oh, this is what happens to, to wind turbines when they're decommissioned and nobody's not nobody, but very, it seems very few people in the, in the interwebs have taken the time to figure out what actually happens. You know, Jason, we see this quite a bit in the in the legislature itself, um, particularly the hearings of the last several years, where you can and we see this actually in, in some public meeting scenarios where there is the the fact and the reality, and then there is certain people have an impression and an agenda and so they're going to see the world solely from that vantage point even when what they're saying is counterfactual wrong not actually how it is um for example in kansas if you do not want a wind farm on your or a turbine on your ground or any of the apportenses associated with a turbine on your ground there is no right of eminent domain. Mm-hmm. You do not have to host anything. Yeah. Private property rights. You don't have to sign a contract. Period. End of story. Now, that doesn't mean you can enforce your preferences on your neighbors because they may come at it for very different reasons. But again, private property rights. That's their choice. Mm-hmm. That's their right. They own that ground. And I never, I'm always amazed at, there are people that will say, well, they're going to come on to my ground and they're going to take my ground. Well, no, I mean, that literally cannot happen here. And so, you know, I think it, it's just spreading a scare tactic. And it, it's, I mean, I think that's really more than anything. No different than we know hard and fast what the decommissioning uh, regulations are in the state of Kansas. We know what that language looks like. We've executed thousands and thousands, member companies have executed thousands and thousands of contracts across the state with landowners and with counties. We know exactly what it's in those decommissioning agreements. And yet you still have people that will stand out there and say, well, no, I'm going to be on the hook to do X, Y, Z. 
And they know that's not the case, yeah. but they just don't, they just don't want to look at the projects. And, and that, that I understand. I mean, I understand if you don't want to look at a wind farm, but, um, but there's a big difference between fine. saying, I don't want a wind farm and propagating, uh, complete mistruths about it yes yes and and that's what you know that and this you know goes back to the the source material here which is you know we saw that on the internet and we had this conversation and i just wanted to know well i thought to myself i know somebody that knows the answer to this question and that's you (laughs) yeah it's uh and i think you know one of the things that you know i would like to see be a part of our general dialogue more is just call a spade a spade if you don't want to look at them just say that or whatever it may be you don't want to look at you know the the new mcdonald's that might go in or i think about the people up in new york that protested the new lego facility mm-hmm. okay or there's a, um, a there's a very large ethanol facility up in i believe south dakota and they were going, there was a proposal to um, put in another uh, processing facility, animal processing facility. And, and the ethanol company came out in opposition, strong opposition to this animal processing facility, even though the two are completely unrelated. And they're both in kind of the industrial sphere. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't want, I mean, so like, People could fight both of them for probably equal reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause if you live downwind of an ethanol facility, I mean, pretty much, you know, what your, you know, what your air is going to smell like all yeah. the time. But it was interesting that when you peel the onion back a little bit, it truth be told, it was actually the CEO of the ethanol company that lived a mile and a half away from that potential processing facility. And he didn't want the processing facility. Uh-huh. And so just call a spade a spade. You know, yeah. you don't need to deride and speak negatively about other industries as scare tactics. I mean, uh, there was a big conversation on Twitter um, oh, about last week where there was a, a gentleman from a more urban area saying that solar facilities, you know, do uh, significant damage to the last remaining vestiges of agriculture land. And warehouses are a better investment. (laughs) I was taken with that because if you have a solar facility on ag ground, you can put pollinator habitat underneath. You can, you know, um, you can raise, you know, sheep underneath if you Mm -hmm. want. Um, And then let's say as the landowner, after the period of your contract, whether it's 15 years or 20 or whatever the contract may be, maybe you've extended the contract. So maybe it's two contracts for 35 years, 30 years. You have a choice as to what happens to your ground. Do you want to return it to ag use? Do you want to sign for a third, third contract with the solar facilities? Do you want to do something entirely different? That's completely your choice, but the panels all go away. The ground's completely remediated. And now you have ground that's, that, you know, fallow and idle for decades and has really rejuvenated itself. Whereas you build a logistics facility (laughs) and there's no remediating that 30 years later. There's no no making the ground 
I mean, the, the, the ag ground has not been improved upon. Yeah, it's permanently so was, altered. It is permanently altered. And even if you take it down and you bring out the foundation and everything, you it, it still has not had that opportunity. I mean, it may have gone back to like a kind of a starting point stage, but it's still been degraded and it's still going to take decades to rejuvenate itself to a point where you can, or years and years and years of significant um, working of that ground to rejuvenate it back to a point where it would be plentiful and productive. So I was just kind of fascinated by that. But again, it goes back to the scare tactic. It, it, it is fascinating that, that there's so much misinformation and that it, it particularly around, you know, the renewables industry and, and also that it's so persistent. It, it just, it just it, it, in the face of facts that illustrate definitively that the mistruths are in fact not true, um, people still hold to that. And in and, and some cases, as you indicated, some people who are in a position to make decisions about how these industries move forward. Um, kind of looking at that, I, I wonder if, uh, if we can talk a little bit about kind of what's on the horizon in renewable energy. Sure. So I, in Kansas, and I, you know, I don't want to speak too much to other states because certainly other states have different policy initiatives and priorities or attributes themselves. But in Kansas, uh, this is kind of what I see our horizon looking like for the next 20 to 30 years, let's say. So I think we'll have some additional wind farms come online. But what I think will actually happen more than anything is that our existing projects will be repowered. And so we'll install new technology. The, the projects themselves will be even more productive. Um, we won't. We just won't see the proliferation of projects, wind farms specifically. I don't believe. Mm -hmm. Not to say that we won't see new projects, but I just think that we'll see a greater emphasis on repowering the existing sites because they really are some of the best sites in the whole world oh, yeah. for wind farm production. So if you can install. Uh, new technology that instead of using 1.8 megawatt turbines, you're using four megawatt turbines. Perhaps your project footprint gets a little smaller, or perhaps your footprint stays the same, but the the output of your project increases two or threefold. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a real win. Um, I see that happening a great deal. I believe that solar is today where wind in Kansas was 15, 16 years ago in the sense that it is about ready to take off significantly. And, and I'm focusing more on the solar that would be, you know, larger scale solar projects yeah. as opposed to, you know, rooftop solar or what we would call like a distributed generation solar. Okay. Although I do believe that there will certainly be, certainly the IRA has increased, um, the economic incentives for more homeowners, small businesses to install rooftop solar, which gives them more control over their, well, one, their power supply, but then two, their, their actual utility bills. So I do see uh, more solar, um, particularly the larger scale solar, but with that will be storage. We will see hybrid projects. And when I say hybrid, it will be, Solar plus storage, possibly storage at some of our existing wind farms. Um, 
we may even see kind of a, a trifold, you know, project developed where it's solar, wind, and storage. So storage is the one fundamental game changer in the entire energy space. And and storage is something where it used to be, you know, 10 years ago, you had a one megawatt storage facility. You know, that was kind of a testing program. We um, have one of the larger storage facilities announced in the United States that that could go in in Johnson County. Mm-hmm. We have, um, you know, we're seeing all over the United States, you know, storage facilities that are seven, several, several hundred megawatts um, in their capability. And that will allow us to generate. And so we know that we're generating, I mean, we can essentially, the projects generate power 99, 99.9% of the time. They can't always send the power into the market because of our constrained transmission grid. So that, so, and, and transmission build out is difficult. It's very difficult to build transmission lines. Significant the lead time to build a project, study a project, to get approval to build a project, then build a project is seven to ten years. Yeah. Um, but with energy storage, since we're constantly producing renewable energy, now we can take that produced energy, store it, and then redeploy it when needed. And so then that takes a lot of the price volatility out of the system. Mm-hmm. So you know, four o'clock in the afternoon on a hot day like today or the hottest day um, or even just a day where there's just kind of a lot of load for one reason or another, it's not going to cause these price spikes that you would see in the market. Prices can remain more flat, which is also good for the consumer. So a lot more repowered wind farms, um, hybridity, and then battery storage. And then I think the next evolution that we will see is Kansas has, we're a strong oil and gas state. We're a strong renewable energy state. We are, you know, we are a a transportation hub, absolutely. And we have unbelievable ability to store goods. Mm -hmm. So natural gas storage. We have a transportation pipeline that is, I can't say second to none, or, you know, first to none, second to none, but, we have an extremely robust transportation pipeline. All of those factors combined make, plus we have a built-in, you know, end user in our ag, in our ag industry mm-hmm. to take advantage of hydrogen generated, um, or I guess just the whole hydrogen economy. So whether it's hydrogen generated for electricity to hydrogen generated, hydrogen made specifically for ammonia for the ag industry, to our ability to store it, to our ability to generate it here and transport it. So we're using low cost Kansas wind that maybe it's generating and it's being curtailed by the regional transmission organization, but guess what? We can actually use it to, to make ammonia or fertilizer. So, I mean, it's just frankly phenomenal what we have the potential to see as far as our energy economy and the technology and innovation that's going to occur over the next 10 to 20 to 30 years. It's awesome. It, well, it is awesome to think about. And I, I, you, you saying that and then thinking back to something you said earlier about the uh, first, you know, the early wind farms in the 70s and how that technology stalled in the U.S., but then it was taken, 
uh, you know, the European, it went, to, it went to Europe and it was developed and improved. And then in, we ended up importing that technology back in yes. initially. Um, and I think about this a lot too, uh, as, as, you know, as we transition through this period of what we're going to do and as renewables take a bigger part of the, the energy makeup, I often wonder about this. Sometimes it, it, there's such, feels like there's such resistance to some of these changes. And my fear is, it, and, and you kind of validated it talking about the, what happened with the wind industry early on, but it feels like if we, if we don't start embracing some of these things, there is, no matter what somebody thinks uh, about climate change or the renewable energy or, or the need for that, at, at the core, we, we, we stand the, the risk of missing out on economic opportunity if we don't adapt and other countries do. Am I right in that fear? Oh, you're 100% correct. And, and I'll actually give you some interesting kind of data points to that end. So... Interestingly, the you know the United States, from an oil and gas standpoint, you had the Middle East as a top producer, certainly Russia as a top producer, and then and then the United States for a long time was a distant third, and that of course changed with the Shell Revolution and fracking, mm-hmm. and that technology really you know propelled the United States back to well not back it propelled the United States to be the dominant uh, producer of particularly natural gas, and that had that has geopolitical impacts. And we're still, I mean, I would still say that we're ferreting through what those geo- geopolitical impacts are. It's given us a little bit more freedom in a lot of ways to to how we handle the Middle East, although that relationship is so heavily, com- highly complicated. But mm-hmm. um, ostensibly, that would have provided us some more freedom in how to handle our um, our friends in the Middle East. What is interesting is that you look at particularly the Air, um, the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, mm-hmm. or you know, I would also suggest anyone to look at Saudi Arabia and India, you know, Mohammed bin Salman. Um, those are 100% oil-based economies. They sink or swim completely on the price of oil. But if you look at the the leaders of those of many of those Middle Eastern nations, with particularly the leader of the UAE and MBS, uh, it is how Vision 2030. How do we transition our countries 100% off oil? Mm-hmm. How do we do it? How do we transition our economy? So you look at. Um, I would suggest that you go spend a little bit of time. Bloomberg uh, in July did a large story on the city of Nome that MBS has proposed. It's to, to be the city of the of the the future, and everything is completely futuristic, including it is 100% powered by renewables, you know, wind, solar, hydrogen, fuel cells, um, building no cars. It's all biking, swimming. There will be swimming lanes, public transit. I mean, it's it's profound, and and it's probably a trillion dollar. Initially, they were thinking it's about a 500 billion dollar project. Now it's probably a, more than a trillion. Uh, but so we have a choice in the United States. We can fight to hold on to, you know, the, the last vestiges of what was in the 1950s, 60s, 70s into, you know, 80s, or we can choose to say, okay, 
we have a competitive advantage in our fossil fuel forms of generation. We are going to adapt those technologies and we are going to, by the same token, let, you know, unleash the innovation of the clean energy economy. And we are going to let those two work together to really create a scenario where the United States flourishes economically and we're also able to stave off, uh, stave off. And I don't, I will probably be on saving off the worst impacts of climate change mm-hmm. potentially. But if we can, if we can, uh, take what is, you know, arguably something that, that, that could have a, a pretty onerous impact on our state's economy, our national economy, the global economy, and turned it into an economic net positive where you're creating more jobs and opportunity. That's, that's probably while you're also, uh, you know, helping ensure that we have a vibrant, thriving uh, planet left for 500, 1,000 years and beyond. I think that's incumbent upon us. Oh, absolutely. So it, it, it's, we, we're at a crossroads. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's, um, you know, it, it is, but it, it is exciting to think about some of the developments and some of the, the advances in technology and, uh, you know, what might be in the future uh, when you see some of the yeah. technology that's been deployed and some of it that's in development. I think it's a, it's a, there's a lot of fascinating opportunity out there. Yeah. And when you look at the leaders of countries that are 100% dependent on this, this, one thing that's coming out of the ground and they're even saying we've got to do it different we should probably take our cues from them because <laughs> yeah. maybe they're i mean you know they may be seeing some things that uh you know i mean i i, I can't imagine what the uh political what the political tone would be if our economy was truly as dependent as their you know, the Middle Eastern economies are on the oil economy. I cannot imagine because when gas hit four and five dollars, you know, think that just the tension and the ire that developed much less, you know, I, I just can't imagine. And so if that's where they're headed, then it might be might be good for us to pay attention to that. I, uh, Not to emulate it, but just pay attention to it. No, it's, it's a, it, that's a that's a good indication that 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 it's uh, there's a lot of apt- adaptation going on and, and we might be wise to do the same. Well, yeah. I, I really want to thank you for taking time to visit with me about this today and, and in particular for walking us through the decommissioning process. I think it's important for people to know uh, since wind is so visible, as you said here in Kansas, I think it's important for people to know uh, not only what happens, uh, but what is in the works uh, to try to make this as, uh, as recy- to make these products as recyclable and as, as, uh, you know, make the footprint as small as possible. And I really, I appreciate your expertise and I appreciate your time to, to come on and visit with me about that. Well, I'm happy to get to do it. Love your podcast. So can I say like, well, first time caller, long time listener? <laughs> <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I appreciate can I that. Say that? <laughs> you can say that. <laughs> okay. Well, thank, thank you, good. Kimberly. Thank you. You have a great rest of the day. All right. You too. Bye. 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 I'd like to thank a few of the people who've helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son Mitchell Probst wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. 
That podcast in Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast in Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyinhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyinhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Assault City Sound Production.